This is the Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. The Political Insider is your inside source on politics from the White House to the State House and all points in between. If it's in the headlines, the Political Insider will have the story. Let's get started. Here's Bill Ballinger. Welcome, weekend political warriors. Item number one, speculation abounds on what Governor Gretchen Whitmer is going to say in her second State of the State address next Wednesday, January 29th, to the Michigan legislature assembled in the House chambers. A lot of anticipation. She has to come up with something more about her theme song since her campaign for governor in 2018, fix the damn roads. She tried last year with a 45 cent per gallon increase in the gas tax that went absolutely nowhere. And so people are wondering what is plan B? What is the strategy for the governor going forward on this subject of fix the damn roads and speculation has it that it's going to turn to bonding, which is something, frankly, I mentioned over a year ago and thought she would probably propose that as at least part of the solution to fix the damn roads a year ago, but she didn't. Now there's speculation she will. We don't even know for sure whether she's going to talk about fix the damn roads in the state of the state. She did not last year. She waited until her budget a week or two later to unveil her plan which turned out to be unsuccessful, as I just mentioned. So she could do the same thing this year, hopefully with more success. The real question is how much bonding could the governor do to get the $2.5 billion a year for the next 10 years for Fix the Damn Roads, which she says is imperative. And at first, most of the studies indicated she couldn't, get bonding without legislative approval for more than about a billion dollars a year, which would not be enough to meet her standard of $2.5 billion a year. But now studies are coming out saying, well, now wait a second. The governor appoints all the members of the Michigan Transportation Commission, at least over time, and she could get them to go along with bonding for, some people are saying, as much as six billion dollars. But of course you have to pay that back if you're the state of Michigan and already the state is spending big money paying off debt on bonds accumulated from the administrations of former governor John Engler and former governor Jennifer Granholm. So some people say that's practically speaking the state really can't afford to spend any more than $60 million a year in debt service payments above what they're already paying in debt service payments. So let's wait and see what the governor proposes, whether she completely tries to end run the legislature, or whether she asks for them on cooperation on some things, and maybe she pieces together some kind of a plan, maybe a little bonding, maybe a little gas tax hike, maybe some shifting around funds from elsewhere in the budget. We'll just have to wait and see. Item number two, 
State Senator Peter Lucido picked up another complaint filed with the Senate Business Office from Senator Mallory McMorrow. I think this is probably the first time in history that you have a complaint by a legislator against another legislator on a sexual harassment charge. And the complaining senator is Mallory McMorrow, who says that way back in December of 2018, when she and Peter Lucido were being inducted into the state Senate, they'd both just been elected to the state Senate, that he made inappropriate remarks to her and even touched her in a way that felt demeaning. She did nothing about it. And she waited until now after the reporter from Advanced Michigan wrote an article complaining about remarks Lucido made two weeks ago that we've talked about on this show. And then Mallory McMorrow said, you know, I should have done something way back in December of 2018. If I had, maybe this reporter wouldn't have had to endure from Senator Lucido what she did. And Mallory McMorrow has also kind of held out an olive branch to Senator Lucido, her colleague, even though He's a Republican. She's a Democrat. And she has said, if he will come and talk to me about this, uh, we'll see where it goes from here. Item number three, uh, we've mentioned before that uh, there's only one legislator left still alive at age 92, Ray Murphy, Democrat of Detroit, who served as a delegate to the Constitutional Convention of 1961-62, and then also served as a member of the State House and the State Senate. Well, you know, there's another little statistic that is fascinating, and that is the Constitution we live under right now, which took effect on January 1st, 1964, was preceded by the 1908 Constitution. How many people are alive who served in the legislature under the old 1908 Constitution, which expired on January 1st, 1964? The answer is, again, one, only one. And he is Lawrence B. Lindemer, Larry Lindemer, L-I-N-D-E-M-E-R, He served in the State House of Representatives a single term, get this, in 1951-52. That is 10 years before the Constitutional Convention, a decade later in 1961 and 62. And Larry Lindemer, after that one single term in the House, did a number of other things. He was a regent of the University of Michigan. He was a Supreme Court justice. He is now retired, 98 years old, living in a retirement home in Chelsea in Washtenaw County, not far from Ann Arbor. He is the last surviving member who served under the 1908 Constitution. As recently as early this month, there was a second person who served in the legislature under the 1908 Constitution, But he died on January 11th, and that was Henry Hogan, who is a retired attorney living near Clarkston in northern Oakland County. He had served in the legislature from 1961 to 64. Remember, 
you could serve in the legislature under the old 1908 Constitution, even while the Constitutional Convention was going on and before, after the voters approved it, it took effect on January 1st, 1964. Henry Hogan served two terms, 1961 to 64, from Birmingham, and then he left the legislature never to return. Uh, very successful uh, publisher. He owned the Birmingham Eccentric. He sold it to Phil Power, who is the owner of a chain of newspapers and also Bridge Magazine right now, former regent of the University of Michigan himself. So Henry Hogan lived to be 87, and of the two men that were surviving earlier this month, you would have thought he probably actuarially had a better chance to survive than Larry Lindemer, but not so. Larry Lindemer is still going, folks. Item number four, uh, a group affiliated with Progress Michigan, which is a left-leaning, Democratic-inclined interest group, says it is going to mount a petition drive to try to collect 425000 signatures for a constitutional amendment. They have to do this by July 6th, which would limit the power and influence of lobbyists. So let's see how that develops, whether they collect the signatures. That's a lot of signatures, folks, 425,000. Get that on the ballot. It would rein in the power of lobbyists, a whole bunch of bad things being done to lobbyists in this constitutional amendment. We'll be back in a minute with our guest, and he'll be with us for the rest of the program. Stay with us. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We have returned, and we are very fortunate to have on the other line with us Craig Teal. He is the research director for the Citizens Research Council. Thank you so much, Craig Teal, for being uh, Craig Teal for being on the Political Insider. Hey, thanks for having me, Bill. I really appreciate the opportunity. And now, Craig, explain to our listeners exactly, so I don't mangle the description, <laughs> uh, what the Citizens Research Council is. It's such a venerable institution. Everybody in government knows what it is. It's been around a long time. Tell tell the listeners what it is. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to do that. Um, you know, we've been around for 104 years um, doing more or less the same type of work. Our mission is basically to put high-quality, nonpartisan, apolitical, objective research in the hands of decision makers. So that could be state legislators, that could be county commissioners, that could be school boards. Um, Our uh, focus is primarily on how government is organized, how we finance government, and how government operates. Um, We look primarily at state and local government issues here in Michigan. Uh, We really don't dip our um, feet into the federal government morass, and that's probably a good thing. Um, But we've been doing this, as I said, for about 104 years a very small staff of about seven full-time employees, four of which do the research. And all of our research, uh, for your listeners, is available for free online at our website, which is www.crcmich.org. And there you can find uh, the complete library of our uh, full-length policy reports, shorter briefs, 
We have a weekly blog that will talk, touch on an issue that's in the news. Um, and then we do uh, presentations across the state. We put those up on uh, research, um, and it's just really a great um, resource for people who want to know how their government is organized, how their government's financed, and how it's operating. Um, and it's the same uh, material we would provide to the elected officials. We provide to, um, you know, the citizenry. And I should know one of the things that we're most well-known for is, um, and this year it'll be uh, likely the case again, is we do a uh, deep dive into the statewide ballot question. So depending on what issue is before voters, we will look at it without uh, uh, any partisan taint um, and just kind of lay out what voters are being asked to uh, weigh in on, whether it's... Uh, marijuana legalization, uh, voting reforms, uh, abortion rights. Uh, we'll just dig into the public policy issues at hand and kind of present that material to the voters. So when it's their turn to become the, uh, the policymakers in Michigan, they have the, the background, the research to, to make an educated vote. And we don't take sides on those issues. We're just kind of providing the facts. CRC is absolutely indispensable to Michigan government. Everybody reads it, studies it, and values it. Let's take a deep dive over the rest of this program, three segments, into K-12 public school funding in Michigan. I want to focus first on a problem area, Benton Harbor Public Schools. Tell us what's going on in Benton Harbor and what is likely to happen. Yeah, so Benton Harbor's been on kind of the watch list for a a school district that's having some very serious financial challenges. Um, And it really came to a head um, this past summer, um, or I should say late spring last year before the school year was up. Um, They uh, were running into a a situation where they may not be able to open their doors the next year uh, because of their financial challenges. Meaning the year we're in right now. Meaning the year we're in right now. And um, this really came to a head last last year, but again, uh, Benton Harbor and its financial challenges uh, had been on our radar screen and the state's radar screen for a number of years. But um, the the way the the system is set up, it's the local uh, school board that's responsible for keeping the budget balanced. And when it fails to do that, that's when you know the state has to take an oversight role and uh, help out. And really, the state. Um, had not been uh, monitoring the district all that well. In fact, uh, the state uh, had taken the, the district out of a uh, oversight uh, regime that was in place under the previous administration, uh, Governor Snyder's administration, and kind of declared that the district's financial problems had been solved. But any of the, the folks who kind of follow uh, what's going on with the health of school districts in the state knew that it was really just a short-term solution to a much long more long-term problem and um and and lo and behold um late last spring uh it came to light that the district was in a serious financial pitch pinch and um our governor our current governor was trying to work out a solution um and that solution uh involved basically closing the high school there they have uh, one high school benton harbor high school and they have a small alternative school so her plan was to close the main uh, high school as well as the alternative school beginning this fall that we that we pat just uh, you know school, current school year and shift the district to a K eight 
um, just uh, kindergarten through eighth grade only, and then have the students uh, who live in Benton Harbor and who uh, would otherwise attend Benton Harbor high schools go to neighboring uh, school districts. So uh, St. Joe uh, is the, the immediate uh, uh, neighbor of, of Benton Harbor. And that proposal that the governor had floated just did not cut it with the local community, and um, it, it looked very heavy-handed. And um, the governor eventually had to, to back off her plan. Um, so the financial problem is still there. Um, they are uh, in the process of trying to figure out what to do with Benton Harbor. Again, they only have one high school, a high school uh, closing a high school is, is more than just, you know, closing the classrooms. It's closing a, a community asset. But the, at the end of the day, something has to happen um, with the finances at Benton Harbor. Because well, Craig, I, I believe the CRC, maybe it was you, wrote an article last summer about this. And you said, really, at this point, and I don't think anything has changed since then, there are three possibilities. Number one, the state could do nothing beyond what it's doing right now, which is nothing pretty much. Two, it could re-engage the emergency manager law. Or three, it could initiate a district dissolution or go back to the proposal to close the high school. What's going to happen? Right. So those were the three possibilities that were out there. Um, You know, uh, the emergency manager law is the policy that kicks in if the district is unable to solve its problems on its own. And basically, that would involve uh, either appointing an emergency manager, getting rid of the district altogether, dissolving it, entering into a consent agreement. And that was was what the uh, district was operating under previously. Benton Harbor was under a consent agreement in the emergency manager law. So when I spoke earlier about um, the problem being declared solved, it really wasn't. The emergency manager uh, there, in effect, just made the problem worse by borrowing a whole bunch of money to pay off its current deficit and then get it out of uh, a financial problem for the moment. Um, So the the emergency manager law is one option. Uh, Another option was for the state to do nothing, and the state is not going to do nothing in this situation because ultimately uh, our Constitution says that state government is responsible for supplying education. It's a delegated authority that they put down on local districts, so the state's not going to just do nothing and walk away. And the, the third option was to dissolve the district entirely, which we've done in a couple instances. And again, that had some very serious concerns in the community. So we're still waiting to see what of those three options are going to play out in Benton Harbor. Okay, we've got to take a break here. We're going to come back and continue this discussion with Craig Teal, who is the research director of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. Stay tuned. You're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger on MTN. Here's Bill. We are back with Craig Teal, the research director of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan. We're talking about K-12 public school financing in Michigan, and there are some problem areas, and we've been talking about Benton Harbor. And, Craig, you were just summarizing where the state is right now on Benton Harbor and what's likely to happen going on. Yeah. Um, so after the governor's proposal really didn't work um, and, and didn't gain any traction locally, uh, they kind of hit the reset button. They put together a um, K-12 
community group, uh, the, the states at the table to kind of work through a solution. And we should have a sense of what that solution looks like, at least the broad parameters, um, sometime this spring, um, because the plan is to have that in effect um, next fall for the start of the next school year. Uh, my sense is that there's no way that the state can't be involved in, in, in helping solve their financial problem uh, in Benton Harbor. But what that involvement looks like, um, uh, we don't know at this point. Um, it's definitely going to involve some technical assistance, uh, financial assistance in some form, whether or not whether that's a loan or some type of direct state appropriation, we don't know. But clearly there's going to be a requirement for some additional resources provided by the state. Okay, let's turn our attention to another school district. This one was once way bigger than Benton Harbor, but it ain't anymore. It's barely bigger than Benton Harbor, and it's Flint, believe it or not. Flint had, you know, like 47,000 students as recently as I think four decades ago, and it's down to 3,700 students today, I believe. Yeah, Bill, I I looked up these numbers here. I thought it might be interesting for your uh, listeners. Um, the graduating class last year um, attended a school, Flint schools, of, of that had 4,200 students totally. When that graduating class entered Flint schools back in 2006, the district was 18,000 students. Wow! So, in the time that a student enrolled in kindergarten in Flint schools to the time he graduated or she graduated, the district had shrunk by 77 percent. It went from Five high schools in 2010, so just about halfway during their period, five high schools to a single high school. Wow. Um, and, and one other kind of, I mean, the, you're touching on a very important point about school finance, which is this declining enrollment. I'm sure we can talk about that a little later. But just to add one more factoid for your listeners, Flint is about 34 square miles, at, and with 4,000 roughly students, that's about 118 students per square mile, okay, just to give your listeners a sense of density there. In Detroit, another large urban school district, that's 143 square miles. They've got 50,000 students. Their students per square mile is about 349. So Flint is basically trying to deliver services um, to a uh, community that's geographically much, much less dense and, and so you can see the challenges when you shrink the number of schools and you still have to get those kids to school somehow. Um, transportation's a consideration. You know, school student safety's a consideration and, and trying to cover, um, you know, a, a fairly large geographic footprint with very few students. Well, is their situation analogous to Benton Harbor? I mean, do they face the same... Uh, possible resolution with help from the state, or is there a slightly different wrinkle there? Yeah, so uh, Flint's problems are more or less the same. Um, in fact, uh, a very similar narrative. Uh, Flint had been on the list of failing, fiscally failing school districts for a number of years, um, and then uh, late in the la- under the last uh, administration, the the district was able to do some borrowing to kind of fix their short-term problem, uh, convert their uh, deficit into what is effectively long-term debt, move it off of their balance sheet. And they went from being on the state's watch list for years to not being on the state's watch list. 
But again, for those of us who are following school finance in the state, we knew that the problems in Flint were not solved with um, that, uh, that change, that uh, moving the, the, the problem from the short term to the long term. Well, as uh, I understand it, aren't Flint voters being asked in March to borrow $30 million to liquidate the long-term liabilities? Yes, so that's going to be a, a ballot question in March. But before that, the state has required Flint um, to, to provide a plan to eliminate its deficit. And so it prepared this plan, and uh, it would involve uh, basically closing a number of schools, consolidating. So they've got, I think, 10 schools uh, or 14 schools operating this year. Um, they want to reduce that number by anywhere from two to three schools. Um, so they would be even smaller than they were to, than they are today, um, and and then it would take over about uh, another 15 years until about 2034 to actually solve their deficit, and uh, that's the plan that's in front of the board right now. Kind of in the background is this uh, bonding proposal that you've mentioned. Um, they would go to the voters, ask for approval to issue. $30 million of debt to pay off their long-term liabilities and at the same time ask for a new tax to pay off that, that debt. So uh, voters um, would be able to, you know, with their approval, be able to solve this problem much sooner than 2035. The, the superintendent thinks that with those additional $30 million and the tax that the deficit would be solved in less than 10 years, in about eight years period time. Well, as I understand it, part of this proposal that's going to be on the ballot in March uh, includes uh, being asked to reduce the authorization to levy a sinking fund millage from four mills down to 1.18 and adopt a new deficit funding millage of just under three mills. And so the argument the school district will be making to voters is that taxpayers will not see an increase in their overall tax bill. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So they've been levying this uh, sinking fund millage since uh, 2010 at four mills. Um, that's coming up for reauthorization. And what the, the district's planning on doing is taking that existing four mills and allocating it about three quarters towards a new tax to eliminate the deficit. You mentioned the 2.8 mills would go towards deficit elimination. And then about 1.2 mills would go towards the sinking fund. So taxpayers are going to not see an increase in their, their annual tax bill, um, but the purpose of the existing millage or taxes will be just divvied up a little differently. Uh, a portion will go to deficit elimination and a portion will go to sinking fund. So that's the plan. It all hinges on an approval uh, at the ballot in March, uh, which is the presidential primary election. Um, so voters will want to get up to speed uh, on that ballot proposal. You think it's likely that voters are going to believe that they're not going to pay any more in taxes when they have to vote yes on a $30 million bonding thing? I, I think they, they may be suspicious, wrongly so, as you yeah. point out. Well, let me ask you this. What if this proposal does not pass in March? Well, if, if this proposal doesn't pass, then it's back to the plan I described earlier, which is the long-term slowly chipping away at the deficit, getting out of uh, uh, debt by the year 2035. That's the plan that the, the school
school board and the superintendent, with the input of the community, there's community meetings going on, that's the plan that they're required to submit to the state. I think if this ballot question goes forward, then they'll revisit that, that current plan uh, that's being developed and maybe speed things up. But for the time being, it's, it's, it's going to be a long slog. It's based on consolidating the district, reducing the number of schools, um, and there's some real challenges with that, um, both in the community, but also uh, financially to do that. Yeah, let me ask you, you mentioned earlier that uh, aid from the state to local school district depends on student enrollment figures. Right. And obviously Benton Harbor and Flint have hemorrhaged students over the years. I mean, Flint's plummeting student population is just almost beyond belief. So I'm, I'm just wondering, what do other states do uh, in terms of gauging financial aid? I mean, is there another model that could be used that could help? Great, great question. I think we can pick that up when we come out of break, Bill, because it's going to involve a little longer answer yeah. than just a one-worder. <laughs> you got it right. We'll be back in a minute. Stay tuned. This is MTN, and you're listening to The Political Insider with Bill Ballinger. Here's Bill. We have returned with Craig Teal. He is Research Director of the Citizens Research Council of Michigan, and we were discussing uh, how student enrollment is the index used by the state to determine how much aid local districts get, and obviously it's that has been a disaster <laughs> in Benton Harbor and Flint who have, you know, respectively hemorrhaged student population for decades, and particularly recently. And so, Craig Teal, I asked you just as we were breaking in the last segment, uh, what other model is there for districts like Flint and Benton Harbor in Michigan to get some financial help without having to use student enrollment as the criteria to determine how much they get. I mean, what do other states do? Can't Michigan do something different? Well, great question, Bill. Um, let's just walk the readers or your listeners back a little bit and time machine uh, travel back to 1994 when the state put in place this proposal A school funding model, which is designed largely to fund students, where students go to school. And so school districts get the bulk of their revenue based on the number of kids who show up in the fall on the first day of class. And um, if you think back to 1994, Michigan was booming, economy was booming, population was booming, declining student enrollment really wasn't a concern at the time when they put this plan in place. And in fact, for the next eight to nine years, most school districts were seeing a modest uh, increase in student enrollment just naturally from, you know, population growth. Um, since 2003, declining enrollment has become a real concern for districts, especially those in urban areas where there's been, you know, a, a shift out of urban areas, depopulation because of economic problems, uh, issues with um, more and greater school choice in those communities. And we've seen school districts lose students. And the way the funding system works is the revenues fall very precipitously, and it's hard for school districts to right-size their budgets in a short period of time to match those revenues. 
and it creates somewhat of a vicious cycle. So revenues come down because students leave. They can't solve their budget problem. That creates problems in the classroom with instruction and programs. More students leave because of that, and it's just completely recycled. Um, Michigan's program in funding students isn't that dissimilar from other states, except for the fact that we put a tremendous amount of weight or import on those student counts, whereas other states provide more resources um, to school districts or the buildings themselves to recognize that enrollment isn't the sole determinant of funding a school. You know, there's school-based costs that more or less are fixed in the short term uh, when, when uh, population is declining. So, you know, uh, there is and has been a number of efforts to re-examine Michigan's school funding program from a number of angles. One, to look at how we fund students individually, and more or less, Michigan just looks at every kid the same and funds them more or less the same and doesn't acknowledge the fact that kids show up at school with different needs, whether they are an at-risk student who's in uh, need of additional resources so he or she can succeed. Uh, Students with special needs in special education classrooms require additional resources that aren't fully funded. Students who are learning the English language need extra resources and the money that's provided to them isn't sufficient to meet those needs. So Michigan really has a problem in terms of just treating all kids equally. That was the idea behind Proposal A, was to equalize funding. But what we found out in the last 25 years is that kids' needs aren't equal. Kids' needs are different. They're differentiated on, you know, what their home background is like, what their economic situation looks like. Yeah, I think Flint has, like... uh... 90% of its students are economically disadvantaged. 21% need special education. That compares to only 60% economically disadvantaged statewide and 14% special education, right? Yeah, those numbers are right. And each of those create problems because those students, especially the students with special needs who are in special education classrooms, by law, they are required to get all the services they need in the school district has to fund those. And if the resources provided for special ed classrooms isn't sufficient to cover the cost, then the money has to come from somewhere. And districts like Flint have to dip into their general fund classrooms, their general education classrooms, pull resources out to fund the special needs. So it's a very inequitable system, um, especially for those districts that have high percentages of special needs students, students who are in special ed classrooms, students who are at risk of academic failure, students who are challenged um, with the English language. Um, and, the, and the state's financing system is pretty much uh, ambivalent to those, uh, those nuances in student populations. So we see schools, districts like Flint, Detroit, um, Benton Harbor, Lansing, who have high concentrations of high-need students, and the resources aren't there to, to help them. Now, let me ask this. Uh, most of these districts, certainly Benton Harbor and Flint, I think also Buena Vista and Inkster, which were closed, um, are majority-minority districts, meaning a majority of the student population is of racial minorities. But, you know, one district that I've read is having trouble is Pinckney in southern Livingston County, and I'm really curious about that. There can't be a majority uh minority population there is there i mean why are they having so much trouble 
Bill, our our um, our school funding system, uh, at, at least from the perspective of that per pupil funding component, is is race neutral. It 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 just counts kids and delivers the same amount of money. And now each district's per pupil grant varies. Um, there are some that get. Uh, a larger amount, um, and that's largely a relic of the, the old funding system. But by and large, the vast majority of school districts in the state get the same amount of money per pupil through this foundation grant, regardless of your location, your uh, racial ba- background, socioeconomic, that per pupil grant is the same. And in the case of Pinckney, the problem there is very similar to Benton Harbor and Flint. It's declining enrollment. They've had... Um, school choice impact the Pinckney public school enrollments severely enough that they've been running into deficits, and now they're dealing with the same problems, different scale, but same problem as, you know, these other districts we've been talking about during your show. Yeah, I'm just surprised because uh, Livingston County is a growing county, and I thought Pinckney would have been part of that, but maybe not, or maybe their system somehow has gotten a bad reputation. And well, and again, that's, that's the issue. Kids leave. People may not know exactly why they left. They, they're they seeking, an op, you know, a, a school that is better fit, whether it's another public school or a charter school, and the messaging in our financial system is that, well, kids are leaving. That must mean Pinckney's a bad thing. I'll leave, too. And it's just kind of a downward spiral that that occurs. What are the other districts that are in trouble around Michigan? Well, there's a quarterly report that's put out by the Department of Education to monitor these districts. Um, The ones we're watching, you mentioned, uh, you know, uh, Pinckney. We're also uh, looking at Hazel Park um, as a a district. Uh, Pontiac Schools is another one. Uh, Pontiac was under a uh, was under the emergency manager law um, was released under the the previous administration and and again those the, the core problem in Pontiac was never solved so we're we're continuing to be concerned about um, Pontiac uh, as well so that's just a, a small smattering of of the districts that we're keeping an eye, our eyes on. Yeah, let me ask. We don't have much time, but emergency manager has gotten a bad reputation because of the Flint water crisis. But you know, it's had a lot of successes in Michigan. Obviously, it did. I think in Detroit. And when the emergency manager law originally was passed back in nineteen eighty nine ninety, I mean, it was like bipartisan support. Uh, Governor Blanchard, a Democrat, signed it. It was sponsored by Dick Posthumus and John Engler, who were the top two Republican leaders at the time. And it was amended a couple of times over the next decade and a half, and nobody blinked in terms of partisanship. But all of a sudden, when Rick Snyder came in in the spring of 2011 and strengthened it... uh, Yeah, it is, and I think uh, it's a discussion maybe for another day, but... Certainly, the emergency manager law applied to schools is a lot different than applied to to kind of general units of government, um, mainly because of finances and how finances work for schools uh, versus uh, local governments. Um, And then the added piece with schools is they're not they're also in the business educating kids and um, having an emergency manager without any educational background come in and just try to balance the books is somewhat uh, ignorant of the larger issue that schools are contending with, which is educating kids. Right. Uh, Look, we could 
obviously go on talking a lot longer. We're out of time. We'll get you back at some point, talk about maybe the emergency manager law. Thank you so much, Craig Teal, Research Director for the Citizens Research Council. Thank you, Bill. Enjoy. Come back next 